Hello, I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. Are you looking at the calendar and carving out pumpkins and getting <laughs> your tricks and treats ready? Uh, yeah, not a lot of pumpkins in the Middle East, Jonathan. Really? Not you, that you many. You astonish me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's amazing how of all of the holidays that we have sort of imported into this country, Halloween is not really is not really one of them. Um, and I think the reason might be that our brand of costume holiday, i.e. Purim, is such just such a good brand. You know what I'm saying? It's such a great, great story. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's get sloshed and dress up. That yeah. just works. Why would you, you need, need another it. another holiday like that? You don't need it at all. And we don't. the truth is we don't need it. And yet in the last 15 years or so, it's only been really that recent, it has completely come here, as you say, a, a U.S., import in britain we used to have guy fawkes night remembering the day when somebody tried to burn down the houses of parliament and people would commemorate that on november the 5th that's lovely (laughs) it's nice and that's been more or less displaced i mean you know you used to walk around people say penny for the guy they would make a little effigy of guy fawkes who would then burn on november the 5th quite dark and weird now that i come to think about it but it's been edged <laughs> out by uh, halloween which is up there in my with simchat torah in my festivals and holidays i don't like <laughs> i was I, just going to ask you're more a hanukkah person right yeah, i love I just, purim but you really you I love never, hanukkah i think purim we can do but halloween i really don't like now as one of my perennial <laughs> themes is the neighborhood i live in i've bored you on this subject before but there is a big plus it turns out, to having Haredi neighbours because one of the little customs that has evolved in my little patch of London is that in order to not bother ultra-Orthodox Jewish families who, of course, don't mark Halloween, our street developed its own little minchag, its own little tradition where if you um, do not put a pumpkin outside your front door, then the message is, do not bother us. And therefore, those That's houses, nice. no one knocks on those doors. No one asks for treats or snacks or, or, or treats, rather, or threatens a trick. And so all you have to do, whether you're Haredi or not, is to simply withhold the pumpkin, put nothing on the outside, and people will assume that you're a Haredi family. So for one night only, I have that option. Mezuzah is on the door, no pumpkin. Boom, people think I'm a Vishnitsa Hasid. So so you are actually putting on kind of a costume that night, we should say. You're pretending Uh, to be a Haredi. I don't don't actually dress up with the full gear, and so I must (laughs) apologize for that. But I say that as if very curmudgeonly. Actually, we do do a bowl of sweets, and we do extend them, etc. And so we do, do, you know, because there are neighbors, there are neighbors' kids, we do it. But this year, you know, I think maybe I might might find, might go uh, incognito and find a way to to duck out. So yeah, Halloween uh, is looming. Yeah. By the way, I discovered after you know saying that we don't do Halloween at all that there are groups of American expats here in Tel Aviv, especially, and of course in Ranana, another uh, sort of stronghold of an American community that do have this underground Halloween and they do have a map of houses that can trick-or-treat and things like that, but it, it's very much underground and not not at all commercialized. Right, okay, that's a good... If, if anyone knows that world uh, and would like to write in to give us little tips of Isra- uh, <laughs> Halloween Israel style, we would love to hear from you. So not only is Halloween looming on the calendar, but coming up uh, is an event which has the people of the world, their eyes turning to Britain and specifically Glasgow in Scotland. 
For this big summit, COP26, in which world leaders gather to discuss what they are going to do to combat the climate crisis. And we thought we should check in with somebody we much admire, who is a bit of an authority on foreign policy, on indeed the battle over the climate crisis. Who are we talking to, Yonid? Um, our special guest today, Jonathan, is Ben Rhodes. He's the co-host of Pod Save the World, uh, one of our favorites. He's a political commentator on MSNBC and a former uh, deputy national security advisor for strategic communications under President Obama. Ben, thank you so much for talking to us today. Hey, Yonid. Good to see you, hear you. Obviously, you you believe that climate change is, is the world's uh, biggest longtime threat. I think there are a lot of people who would agree with you. Is the Biden administration convinced, Ben? I mean, is it do you kind of feel that it is the organizing principle of their their foreign policy? I think they're part of the way there um, in the sense mm. that if you look at what they've constantly described as their core priorities, it's COVID, the economy, climate change. And if it does end up that uh, Biden's uh, uh, you know domestic agenda, which is basically all in this reconciliation package, climate change does appear to be the most heavily funded aspect of that. That said, you need to step back and put this in some perspective as someone who does think that this is the number one national security challenge challenge for me and my children and their their children if, if there's still planet for them. We're debating right now spending five hundred billion dollars in a climate bill that is projected out over 10 years at the same time that the United States is passing a well over seven hundred billion dollar annual defense budget. So more in one year on our defense budget than we're projecting out for 10 years of spending on, on climate change. Uh, the priorities inside the massive machinery of the U.S. government are still out of whack. We don't act in our foreign policy and in our domestic economic policy as if climate change is the biggest threat. We act like it's this kind of growing issue of concern to one part of the electorate. Uh, and again, that's just representative of our politics, but that's nowhere near where we need to get to and where basically weather and global events are going to force us to get to, I believe, in the next decade or so. So what you're describing there is obviously bad news in terms of the issue itself on dealing with the climate crisis. But I wonder if there's if there's a, a, another side to this problem, which is they'll, you know, Joe Biden and the US will go to this uh, summit in Scotland and there'll be representatives that won't be the leader of China there. And the argument that Chinese will make is, look, we can come and with big proposals and there's big action we can take because we're not going to be subject to changes of government. We can do things swiftly. We can decide it's a big priority. Even beyond the substance of the actual issue of, cli of, the, uh, of the climate crisis itself, is there a big problem here for almost the democratic world that it cannot get its act together on a problem that is existential for the planet in a way that authoritarian regimes, if they want to, can flick a switch and just say, right, we're moving from yeah. fossil, fuels, fossil fuels to renewables. Well, first of all, I do want to, 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 to say that it's easy to overstate the, the problem in terms of U.S. dysfunction, because when you talk about the scale of action being taken, it's the case that under Obama, so much effort was put in investing in, in clean energy and in regulating fossil fuels and in just kind of signaling this is where the economy is going, that even though Trump came in and undid a bunch of those regulations, the U.S. actually hit its Paris goal because underneath Trump's ranting and raving about Paris and stuff, companies were adjusting. They're like, we're, we see where this is going. The markets were adjusting. Money was moving. People are not 
you know, building new coal plants in the United States. They're building solar farms, right? Uh, and wind farms and solar panels. So, so I, I do think that if Biden comes with a scale of like half a trillion dollars on top of that, part of the argument we can make is, look, even though our politics appear dysfunctional, our economy is transitioning. And you guys can see that happening. And oh, by the way, you know, for all that argument, which I've heard for years about China, and, and there's some truth to it, democracies are handling this better than China or India. I mean, if you look at just where Europe is and where the United States is on this issue, now we were ahead of the curve in creating the problem, so we have a responsibility to be ahead of the curve in fixing it. But I think this this argument can be overstated. I also think that, yes, while it is true you can move China very fast in a short period of time, and we took advantage of that uh, in the run-up to Paris when Xi Jinping essentially made a big commitment standing next to Obama that, that unlocked what became the Paris Agreement, uh, they can move fast. The, the 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 weaknesses of authoritarian systems are also present. The transparency isn't everything that it should be. You know, the capacity to verify what they're doing and what their pledges are is harder than in a democracy where you have civil society and journalists holding everybody accountable. So you know, there's there's as someone who's uh, had to deal with and think about mainly the twin issues of the decline of democracy and climate change. I have a very cheerful existence. Um, you know, th there are strengths and weaknesses for both in terms of when it comes to dealing with climate. The goal is to take advantage of the strengths of both, you know, take advantage of that capacity of, of closed systems to move fast and of democratic systems to respond to public pressure and to move markets and in that alchemy, get enough action to, to deal with the problem. Right. Democracy better than authoritarian regime. I think we're okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay um, with that. <laughs> um, you know, we're talking about China, and I wonder, obviously, which in itself is a long-term challenge for the Biden administration. How do you, on the one hand, you know, push China on issues like Taiwan and, and Xinjiang and Hong Kong and Tibet, and also say at the same time, we need you to reduce carbon emissions? There's going to be a trade-off here. I mean, you have to decide what is more important to you, don't you? Yeah, it, it, this is a very difficult issue too, Yonit. And um, and the reality is, you know, things are pretty frosty right now between the United States and China and don't look like they're going to get better anytime soon. Everybody needs to deal with climate change or else we're not going to be here. And and the one of the reasons why we felt like Xi Jinping was very open to working with us on climate is that the, one of the single biggest sources of domestic political pressure in China, and, and even in autocracies, you can have political pressure, was from air quality. And environmental degradation, you know, and, and anybody who spent some time in China knows like that's a big issue. That's a, and, and, and people that that may not want to challenge the Chinese Communist Party within China on, on political issues. They've given up on things like you know freedom of speech and multi-party democracy. Well, if you can't breathe and, and you know, and, and, and your, your family members are dying early because of uh, of air quality issues, you know, that can lead to unrest, too. And so um, she has his own incentives to, to take action on, on these sets of issues. And it's also the case that if the US and Europe and enough of the global economy is moving forcefully enough in the direction of getting rid of fossil fuels and getting to zero emissions, net zero emissions, the global economy is going to regenerate itself anyway. And, and is China going to be wanting to sit there you know, trying to build coal plants while the rest of the world is running on a different energy? No. So again, I think that there is a danger. I don't want to suggest that it, it, it's, it's harder to, to deal with this problem if the U.S. and China are getting along. But I, I, I would also say that's not the only reason for China to, to move in the right direction on this set of issues. Now, the, at the risk of being parochial, our focus on this podcast is often Israel and the Jewish world. So just to get it into, get closer into the region, 
because uh, you were talking about the rest of the world moving away from fossil fuels and running on other forms of energy. Do you believe the oil-producing states, the Gulf states of the Middle East, when they say they want to move ultimately to net zero and move away from fossil fuels, or is that just quite canny PR on their part, that the oil producers are going to you know, vote for Christmas by uh, moving away from the thing that has made them so rich? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, they to, the, to this point, it's PR. I mean, I haven't seen, you know, kind of concrete plans from the Gulf states that really indicate <laughs> that they're, they're looking to bring about the earlier transition to the, a world in which the, the most of the world is independent on the thing that they take out of the ground that makes them incredibly rich, right? Um, they have, in the last decade at least, begun to talk about <laughs> that transition, Um you know, a lot of the sales pitch for Mohammed bin Salman um, before, you know, the world saw like his, his darker colors was the diversification of the Saudi economy and basically taking all the oil wealth that they have now and investing it in stuff so that um, when they can't rely on that oil wealth, they, they're still as rich, right? So that they're at least thinking about it. Um, but, you know, like the oil companies themselves, right? Like the Western oil companies themselves or the American oil companies themselves. You know, there's a marketing campaign and there's like the pictures in the magazines with like the wind turbines and, you know, but it's really an oil company that's, uh, and, and it, it, that may be the first step to where you need to get. And, and it's not, that's not a surprise to me. I mean, I think what's interesting in the current context, you know, with, with Israel and the Abraham Accords, you, you know, Israel could be a leader in the development of some of the technologies that are going to be necessary to deal with carbon capture, to deal with clean energy, having designed an economy that runs a lot on tech and kind of a startup mm-hmm. ethos. Um, and, and it's interesting that they're in this kind of new political marriage with the people that are not, you know, but who could invest a lot of money in that stuff too, right? I mean, they could get rich on clean energy instead of oil. So it'll be interesting to see if the Abraham Accords in any way impacts that picture. I mean, again, in the, in the grand scheme of things, that's not going to be the, the difference maker, but it's one other element to this. You know, we were mentioning Israel, and I think for many years, Israelis in general, like a, as a collective, thought that the urgent needs to take the first row, right? The, the front row. So you'd have issues of terrorism and security issues, and then you'd think the important, which is climate change, is, is, is just a little less urgent. I think Israelis are maybe slowly realizing that this is urgent. Uh, and you had a, a, a report come out by the Israel State uh, Comptroller this week saying really, really that Israel's not done uh, enough, uh, even close to enough, on uh, issues of greenhouse uh, uh, gas emissions. I wonder how you um, look at that and how, if at all, there's a way for countries that are not ideologically against this, but just think there are more urgent, so to speak, uh, issues. How would you convince them to say, listen, this is really the most urgent thing on the agenda? I'd say to, to, to Israelis beyond, um, you know, beyond the kind of global moral argument I would make to everybody, right, about the future of the planet, but very specifically, if you look at the projections, if you look at, say, the reports coming out of the U.S. intelligence community in recent weeks in the lead up to this, the effects of climate change in difficult security environments where there's resource scarcity, that's going to be the most acute set of challenges. So you guys are living in a neighborhood where you know firsthand, like people fight over water, people fight over access to basic resources, and it's pretty hot. You know, and, and if you take all that stuff and mix it together and you, you, you juice up 
the projected global temperatures, and then you look at what impact is that going to have on a place like the Middle East, it's going to be more conflict over scarce resources. It's going to be even more migration flows. It's going to be those migration flows trying to get to places where there are resources. And so if you take Israel's already, you know, constantly somewhat precarious um, security position, and you add, and you basically take take climate change. What climate does is it makes it all more combustible. You know, it, it makes if there's pre-existing shortages or scarcities or temperature issues or environmental issues, it, it, those places explode. And, and so, to me, it, 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 you know, Israel could could find itself ironically in a place where it has spent decades trying to reduce its security vulnerabilities and. 20 years from now, the thing that could be introducing the greatest security vulnerabilities is climate change. Um, and so you have to think of it in those terms as not just, I think sometimes people think of it as like this environmental issue. No, it's it's a security and kind of well-being issue writ large. Do you think we hear enough from, and of course we hear from them a bit, but do you think it's enough uh, from the religious world, religious minorities, religious communities, religious leaders making a point which isn't a national security point or even a, a you know strategic point but a sort of moral point about you know the the world i was speaking with one uh, eminent rabbi in this country who you know really is probably the foremost ecological voice in in in, in you know rabbinic circles here who makes the case that you know judaism if it teaches anything it's all about the fact that we don't own the world and we don't we can't exploit it commodify it uh, we're here just to be custodians and stewards of nature and the world, and I know you know that are those sort of arguments are familiar, but but are do we hear them enough? Do you think? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it, you know I remember when we were uh, when I was in, in in the White House, and when Pope Francis kind of came out with you know force on this issue, it was it was something different. It got everybody's attention. It didn't transform the politics of this, but it it it, it added a moral dimension. It it added a voice that was speaking from a place that, you know, kind of went beyond a political news cycle or something, right? And and I do think that religious leaders, particularly religious leaders can speak kind of collectively as well as to their own communities. Um, they need to to bring that perspective to it. I think one of the problems with this issue like so many other things that American politics has kind of messed up, is that this kind of became this partisan issue, right? Where in the U.S. it was like, well, climate change is something Democrats care about and Republicans don't even believe it exists. And and then I think in the way in which religion has kind of become politicized in this country, you know, like if you're, if you're an evangelical Christian, therefore you're, you're less likely to believe that climate change is real what what you know that makes no sense like it, it, there should be so I, I think this is a, a, a case where kind of that basic capacity of religious leaders whether they're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or whatever they are to both speak to their own communities about this being something that is that is really different than politics but is about kind of how we think about our place in the world um, and our responsibility as stewards of God's creation I think that's an important uh, often missing voice. It happens a lot in individual, you know, synagogues or churches. But, but uh, I think one way. Here's one way to think about this, Jonathan Yuni, is like I believe if you look at the science, like ten years from now, like we're not even going to be like this is going to. This is going to be what everybody's saying because it's happening. It's ha you know. Um, but for for whatever reason, we're just not. 
we're not allowing ourselves to, to live in the world that is already coming. But just to follow up on that, beyond getting religious leaders to say what they, to voice that message, and I hear you completely on that, I wonder if political leaders, and I'm thinking about Joe Biden, who is, you know, a Catholic and a man of faith, whether he should start talking in that language about a moral obligation and, and, and being trustees of the globe and that kind of language, rather than just the more pragmatic conversation about you know, economic opportunity and even national security. Yeah, I don't know how many conversations I've been in over the years about like, how do we talk about climate change in a way that people will listen? And should we make it a national security issue? And and most often, the, the point is that we should talk about jobs, 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 green jobs. Um, and all that's true. I think there's a way to make a moral case that is not um, like that and not framed like that. I also think as, as an American, there's a way to make the case just in general that like, because I believe this to be true, I think America can do really big things at home and around the world. That that's what's one of the things that's good about America. And the world's seen a lot of what's bad about America in recent years. This should be the big thing that we do. What's bigger than leading the world to deal with the, the moral challenge of our times um, and the survivability of our species? Um, so the, 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 the remaining sliver of optimist in me thinks that there's going to be a moment where that American thing kicks in and enough Americans are like, yeah, let's let's go do this and charge up this hill. I just hope it's not too late. I'm glad to hear that there's a sliver of optimism there. <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about uh, messed up American politics. And I'm, I'm sitting here as a representative of a country that had four elections in two years. So I can't let you go without asking you. I mean, when you see this uh, being so immersed in, in, in the Obama presidency and the relationship uh, uh, with uh, Netanyahu, seeing this new government, just asking your views on this, obviously Naftali Bennett, demonstrably not Benjamin Netanyahu. On the other hand, uh, being the, the former leader of the settler movement, obviously someone coming from the Israeli right. How do you, how do you see this, Ben? Yeah, it's interesting, Unit, and I, it's funny coming out of what I was just saying. I always, I think I've said to you on email, because I, 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 I'm critical of the Israeli government often, but, but not as critical as I, I am usually of the, the U.S. government. <laughs> so I, uh, I, it, it's, it's from a place of, of, of love. I, I, look, I, I think that um, one of the things that I saw, and here where the U.S. comparison I think is, is somewhat apt, um, over the course of the eight years that I was in the White House, what was very interesting is the, there was a kind of parallel radicalization, if you will, of, of Netanyahu and the Republican Party. Separate and apart from that move to the right on a set of issues, Netanyahu, as an observer, seemed to be moving in a, in a pretty scary direction, just as kind of uh, in terms of his personal politics and, and how much he was just consuming the attention um, uh, and the psyche, really, of Israeli politics in the same way that kind of Trump was doing here, but from, in, in, you know, obviously with differences because it's Israel and it's a very different system. So I do believe moving past that era, even to a government that doesn't embrace the, sa the pol policies that, like, I would recommend uh, um, uh, on certain issues was what, a healthy break. Um, and, and just having, you know, as a Democrat in the United States, just having an Israeli prime minister foreign minister wanting to come to the U.S. and engage U.S. officials for a purpose other than humiliating them <laughs> or picking a public fight with them to help their politics back home. Like, I cannot tell you, you need, I mean, you do know how corrosive that was. Like, every interaction we had with Netanyahu uh, 
for the last few years, like he was going to use it to have it be a negative, you know, after that last trip, the last time I think it went well was when Obama went to Israel in, in 2013. Everything after that, it was just like, he, you know he's going to pick a fight just for the sake of having the fight back home. And man, that made it hard to do things, right? I, I was wondering if you would actually welcome the new prime minister in particular for a different reason, which is that you uh, once wrote, I wish the right would just say, we don't believe there should be a Palestinian state. We believe in the concept of a greater Israel. We feel, we feel sorry for the Palestinians, but they're just going to have to deal with it. Um, and there's in Naftali Bennett is someone who doesn't do even what Netanyahu did of paying lip service to the two-state solution, he said on the record, you know, I can't see a Palestinian state for another 200 years. I'm not, I don't want to see it. And so in a funny way, from almost from the right, yeah. is, is Bennett a more candid figure to deal with than Netanyahu? Yes. And, and I believe, I truly believe this. And this was part of my frustration as we got deeper into the Obama years, um, is that it was evident to me that, you know, Netanyahu's stated openness or commitment or whatever to some kind of Palestinian state was obviously not what he believed. It was about having a process so that there was a process and people could point to it. And and Netanyahu was the master at blaming the Palestinians for, you know, if they didn't show up for the meeting, then it was their fault. If they showed up to the meeting, then they did something wrong at the meeting. If the meetings didn't work, it was... And, and granted, the Palestinians do the same thing, but Israel is in a much stronger position, obviously. And and so I'm like, well, this isn't leading anywhere. I have, I have good friends, you know, who, you know, obviously think I'm too hard about on the Israeli government about this. And I, I always just say, that's fine. You, you, you may be right, but... What what do you want to do with the Palestinians? Like, where are they going to go? Like, wh- wh- what are they citizens of? Like, like I just tell me because I live in one state with Republicans and Democrats who can't you at each other's throats. I can't imagine <laughs> like Israelis and Palestinians in one state. But what is the alternative? And let's let's just have an open discussion about that. And so, if it is a Bennett over time, I would much prefer a politician of the right who's at least straightforward and laying it out on the table, so we can all talk about it. Well, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for the future of the region or the future of the Palestinians or what have you? Um, then pretending like we are all there's it's like it's 1994. Well, if we all fell on climate, I mean, the good news, at least <laughs> we're not going to have a planet, but we're not going to have to solve this big problem. So at least, you know, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah well, climate, but, to be honest, so you need to, to tie this all together. Like climate does put all the, like a lot of things in this bigger perspective. perspective of like, hey, sure. look, you know. This is the one that like that we all got to root for each other's success. You know, like yeah. I want every country to, to I mean, in Paris, one of the cool things about Paris, I remember thinking at the time was like it's the only co- agreement like every country in the world is, is in this deal, you know, and it's just the one issue where we can't afford to not, you yeah. know, work together. Uh, is, is Paris the one where you crash the Xi Jinping's? Uh, a meeting? No, that was actually the first one um, in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. Where I remember that that you crashed. It was a great story because what it was also a signal of is like people were behind the curve, obviously on China rising. Things had fallen apart in Copenhagen. That was the first you know climate summit of the Obama years, and we were looking around for India, Brazil, um, the Chinese, obviously, because they're the leaders of the developing bloc, and and we literally for, couldn't find them. And then we heard, hey, the Chinese are in this this meeting room. And so Obama's like, like, I'm tired of waiting. Let's just go, let's just go meet with them, you know, even if they're even if they're telling us they're not ready. 
So Chinese security tries to block us from going in, literally pummels me to the ground. I'm a pretty small guy. I have to admit it wasn't that hard for them to do that. And Obama, though, just charges through because they're not going to touch him and the Secret Service there and they're scuffling with the Chinese. And he walks into this room and he says to Wen Jiabao, the, um, the premier of China, he's like, are you ready for me now, Wen? And there was this kind of like... <laughs> Are you ready, man? Like, let, let's let's fucking do this. Sorry, I don't know if you guys talk like we do on my podcast. And, Jonathan says that all the time. Don't worry about it. And to be clear, Obama didn't say that. I'm just kind of amping this up. <laughs> and what was amazing is, when was chairing a meeting, there is the Prime Minister of India. There is the President of Brazil. There is the President of South Africa. There is the President of Russia. The Chinese were calling the shots. This is 2009. This isn't wow. last year. And Obama sat there and he negotiated what became the outlines of Paris. Um, n- none of the details, though, but the idea of, of, a, of, of at a minimum, a two degrees Celsius goal with everybody having to do something with transparency and reporting requirements every few years and with some kind of funding mechanism for, for poorer countries to move to clean energy. But it was a sign, man, that, that the world order had changed back then. This was such a pleasure, Ben. Thank you uh, so much for talking to us. We learned a lot. And thank you for no. showing us your remaining sliver of optimism. Yes. Which I feel we've had, we've, we've had an enjoyable interaction with your remaining sliver. <laughs> yeah, it's still, you need to hang on to it. You, need you to must. Hang on to it. It's important. A little bit optimistic as well, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, he said about he's got this remaining sliver of optimism, but <laughs> I think there was quite a bit there. And now we want to do something we haven't done in a while, Jonathan. Let's talk Israeli politics. Down the rabbit hole we go. Um, let's pick uh, up where we left off with an accidental prime minister leading an unexpected coalition. After four and a half months, Naftali Bennett is still the prime minister and his coalition is still standing. What we're looking at right now is the final date to pass the budget, which is November 14th under Israeli law. If the budget doesn't pass, the government falls. So this is a major test, major first test for this coalition. If it does pass, and I'm willing to bet that it will after some haggling and last minute crises, uh, Bennett can breathe a, a sigh of relief. It will be after that pretty difficult to topple the government, but not impossible. And of course, the next date after that that you will be looking at, and we might talk about this, is 27th of August 2023, when he is supposed to transfer the reins over to the alternate prime minister, Yair Lapid, who said Israeli politics is complicated. And there's a bit of a mess and some confusion and restlessness. That's just what's going on in Benny Gantz's head. So <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Benny Gantz, which of course made headlines uh, last Friday when he declared six Palestinian human rights groups as terror organizations saying that they operated as an arm for the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine. I don't want to get into the actual decision, just talk a little bit about what the effect of this was on Bennett's quite fragile coalition. Gantz I mean, just for you, I mean, you, you obviously, we, we, we will get on to the politics of it, just on the decision itself. I know we're going to mm-hmm. avoid the substance, but it isn't a great look to be branding political organizations as terror organizations. In the, I mean, one of the things that people were so relieved about having this new government there was the idea that Israel was turning away from the kind of authoritarian drift that had been present in the previous government, in which dissenting organisations were, you know, really um, castigated and sort of ostracised as somehow illegitimate. And this feels like, instead of being a change from that, this feels like almost going further, almost going further than Netanyahu ever did. 
Yeah, well, I, I don't think it comes from any authoritarian uh, uh, drift. I think it comes from the uh, uh, intelligence information that essentially is saying that uh, this uh, organization kind of staged a hostile takeover over these um, uh, six organizations and they're essentially just become a shell for uh, terror operations. I think what's important here, uh, Jonathan, in Hebrew, there's an adage, which in English translates into it may be the right thing to do, but it's not the smart thing to do. Uh, and I'm putting aside if this is the right thing to do. I think that at the point that you are right now, right, in this kind of fragile coalition, in this beginnings of a relationship with a new administration in Washington, to take this step without public diplomacy effort, surprising your own prime minister, uh, Naftali Bennett, with this decision, and maybe not less importantly, surprising your own supposedly best friends in the coalition, which is the left side of the Israeli coalition with this, is a problem in itself. Now, it created really a rift between Benny Gantz and especially the head of the Labour Party, Merav Michaeli. She's saying Gantz is damaging the country. He's saying she's interfering in the war on terror. She retorts with, he's no Yitzhak Rabin. He says back, don't lecture me about defense and responsibility. This this reads like the world's worst romantic comedy. Um, But, you know, (laughs) this is what has been going on. And I think it's uh, important for us to ask, what is going on in Benny Gantz's head. Because when you add to that the uh, 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 fact that Israel approved 1,300 settlement units in uh, the uh, West Bank, and this is, of course, something that Benny Gantz could block if he wanted to, because he is the defense minister, and because that part of the coalition has veto rights on any decision like this, you, you have to ask yourself what is going on here. Why is Benny Gantz being so kind of pandering to the right uh, in, in this country to the right electorate, there is, I know it's a crazy scenario, Jonathan, but we already talked about crazy scenarios on this podcast that became reality. So yeah. there is a lot of chatter about the option that Netanyahu has been digging tunnels under this coalition all the time, is trying to pull Benny Gantz into his own uh, man-made coalition saying, Gantz, you become prime minister, you bring me the votes, we create an alternate coalition. It's Again, it sounds like a crazy scenario, but what you see is Benny Gantz, you know, making a lot of headlines and a lot of people kind of scratching their heads and asking, why is this happening? Yeah, I mean, that's, as you say, you can't rule out what might seem bizarre. I mean, if they, besides that calculation, what other calculation might he have? Um, it is interesting because it was very easy to sort of forget about Benny Gantz in these, in the, you know, in the calculations, because his party went from being, you know, the big opposition to really just a handful, all the attention was on Bennett and Lapid. So we sort of forgot about Gantz. And I wonder if in a funny way, that's all part of it, too, that he wants to kind of remind people, look, I'm still relevant, I'm still a player. Of course. I mean, remember that not so long ago, he was about to be the next prime minister. That is where he saw himself, right? It doesn't matter that Netanyahu essentially cheated him out of it and went to elections, but that was what what he was promised. And now he's just a minister out of a long line of ministries. He doesn't think the current prime minister, Naftali Bennett, is more talented than he is, more accomplished to be uh, prime minister. So I think it's also a little bit of, I want the attention. But I think beyond the skirmishes, and by the way, the minute the budget passes, we're going to hear a lot more noises inside the coalition because they're going to feel more secure. So everyone's going to, you know, talk to their own base and you're going to hear a lot of noise and maybe even some cracks. I don't think the building is going to fall down so quickly. But I think that it is legitimate to start asking what is the joint vision of this coalition? What does it want to do? We know it's very diverse. We know everyone has their own, you know, agenda. 
at the end of the day, what do they want to do? I mean, okay, the first thing was to get rid of Netanyahu, check on that. Then it was to survive, pass a budget, fight COVID, okay. And then what? And that, I think, is a question that we, we have yet to answer. They look more like a, a political argument than they do uh, government. Yeah. And some of that blew open, didn't it, with this taped recording of one minister dissing, in fact, Gantz again, actually, in the form of Ayelet Shaked and her little pop at him. Um, when these leak tapes and Gantz will destroy everything, Lapid is shallow, etc. So it is already kind of showing those cracks. I, I think, you know, just the fact it's still there is its number one achievement. Um, and that has caused a lot of surprise. Uh, and these arguments, you know, if it was the politics of a different country, you'd be saying, my God, how can it possibly survive? You know, Israeli politics allows people to be slinging mud at the in and in sometimes in the most venomous and vicious way, and then there they are the next day shaking hands. You know, so in, <laughs> eating in hummus together. Eating hummus. <laughs> so you would you would worry in other places, but there I think it is um, more sustainable. Now we should um, make mention of other things going on in the world, and one in particular is an anniversary um, which. Uh, it's significant, and the previous anniversaries have not been marked in the same way, partly because of the pandemic, and that is the third anniversary of what was the most uh, violent anti-Semitic attack on American soil in the country's history, and that was the uh, shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, three years ago this week. Uh, they were really limited in what they were, have been able to do in that community to commemorate um, uh, uh, the event last year, uh, and so this time uh, there was been, they've been able to have uh, to mark the the moment uh, in a more deep uh, uh, and sort of in person way. Yes, resident around the world, and you know it was shocking uh, to Jews everywhere, and of course in this country. And you just think of the fact that in 2018, the number of Jewish civilians killed in a terror attack in the United States was 11, and the number of Jewish civilians killed in terror attacks in Israel was seven. Just to kind of give you that, it, there are less, uh, I think maybe for the first time, there are less uh, Jews in Israel killed in a, in a terror attack than there were, because of this Pittsburgh situation, than there were in the United States. And again, it was, it was this shocking moment uh, for everyone around the world. So very much something we wanted to mention. Um, we have got awards to hand out, as always, Mensch and Chutzpah. And some listeners have noticed that there has been an unexpected, and I have to say unintended, division of labour between us on this subject. Un what is the controversy you're Unintended, in? Jonathan? Unintended. I mean, ever, ever since we started our sunny second season, some alliteration there, you have <laughs> allocated the Mensch Award nominees to yourself and the Chutzpah nominees to me, and somehow signalling to our listeners and cementing that you are the warm and fuzzy, I love humanity guy, and I am the dark, cynical, you know, chutzpah girl. I'm just saying. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I do not, I'm going to be like a politician. I do not recognize your <laughs> figures or your data. I don't um, remember. Picture, uh, yeah, I don't I recall. Do recall. I do not recall at this time. Jonathan the, okay. Saul Friedland. <laughs> I am asserting my authority as co-host and co-founder of the Unholy franchise and sole commissioner of Unholy Logo Mugs. <laughs> and I'm taking back the men I am taking back the Mensch Award this week. So are you That's gonna it. do Mensch first? Why don't you do that first and I can yeah, do I know, oh, well, or, or Chutzpah, whichever you like. Um 
I'm going for English politeness. Uh -huh. do, why, don't, why don't I go ahead with chutzpah and leave you the nice one? So the chutzpah <laughs> is back to our favorite topic of Bibi Netanyahu. I, I, I know it's, it's like a moth to a flame. We keep coming back to it, but I just can't pass this one up. He um, went to spoke to some of his supporters and just said, uh, told an anecdote about how he had come out of having a haircut and had just been mobbed. Uh, you know, he, he could not remember anything like it. The crowd of people who came out to see him, he couldn't move. It was such a scene. And obviously he meant to indicate that there's something huge going on in the country and his popularity is reaching unprecedented heights. The reason he gets the Hutzpah Award is unbeknownst to him, someone was filming this <laughs> and released the video. And you've got to see the video. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes for this week's episode because he comes out and like a couple of people come up to him and say hi. And that's it. <laughs> He's really not mobbed. There are one or two people who, you know, shake hands and move on. Otherwise, he is very unmobbed. And the idea of him saying, I can't remember anything like it, this is spin, some would call it um, fiction, and it's been exposed, so he gets uh, my chutzpah nomination. Like the uh, chief says in One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, just because something didn't happen doesn't mean it's not true. Jonathan. <laughs> so uh, I will I will give the Mensch Award of the week to a Frenchman, Emmanuel Macron, the president of the Republic, who has decided that the army could posthumously promote Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Uh, this is him signaling to the French extreme uh, right wing and the ultra conservatives who believed uh, that uh, Dreyfus was guilty. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I think it's very good to see him making a stand uh, and, and, and making a point about where France should stand on, on this topic. It's really interesting because uh, his potential opponent in the uh, presidential, next presidential election is himself Jewish, a man called Eric Zemmour. We are going to talk about him and all of that more on the podcast, but the Dreyfus affair incredibly still has political resonance in the France of today. And this was something that wasn't just in the last century, it was in the century before that, at the tail end of the 19th century, and it's still political in France. Anyway, we are going to talk France and uh, Macron and Zamour uh, next time. Uh, for now, um, two Jews on Instagram. You can find us there. No numbers, just letters. Do follow us on there and spread the love about this podcast. So many of you have been giving us lovely reviews uh, and we are very grateful for those. And we shall th say thank you to uh, Lior Friedman, our executive uh, producer, Rom Atik, head of podcast, Omer Primat and Erad Eshel, for original music. I like that world when I do the mensch and you do the chutzpah, Jonathan. We might uh, recreate that next week as well. We might. I'm going off to carve my pumpkin. Um, <laughs> whose face will depict? We, we will, <laughs> will I depict in the pumpkin? Uh, happy Halloween and uh, see you next time, Yoni. See you. <laughs>